What's up, everybody? So I want to let you know that the Alpha Brain Golden Ticket Sweepstakes are still going on. And that's just a rad opportunity not only to stock up on your Alpha Brain or give Alpha Brain a try. Because if you haven't tried Alpha Brain, it's definitely one of those tools that's different than any stimulant you've had and gets your brain firing in an absolutely different way. And that's what our clinical research has shown, and that's what everybody who's tried it. You know, we've sold over a million bottles of Alpha Brain, and the results are in. It works. It's awesome. So this is a great opportunity, though, because if you get the Golden Ticket Sweepstakes, everybody is a winner, and there's a bunch of cool shit that we're giving away, from kettlebell sets to different other products, to discounts. Every single person is going to be a winner if you go to the golden ticket sweepstakes so check it out on it.com slash golden ticket and then enter the code and fill in the entry form there's going to be a grand prize for one of you which is going to be a trip out here to austin and on hq so you'll be able to come hang at the hq and do all the awesome on it things so definitely check it out go to on it.com slash golden dash ticket and get your 30 count or 90 count bottle of alpha brain it's always special when I get to sit down with one of my heroes, and Dr. Gabor Mate definitely qualifies. He's the author of many books, a lot of which are focusing on how trauma affects you in later life, and he's worked hands-on with a lot of people suffering from addiction, utilizing psychedelic medicine. This is one of my favorite podcasts. I hope you guys enjoy. So a few years ago at Psychedelic Science, I had the pleasure of being introduced to a whole host of individuals, and I remember that your speech particularly stood out and that was one um, not only for the information that you were providing but the means and the methods I mean you were someone who was really willing to go into the heart of the problem which at that time was uh, heroin addictions in Vancouver where you're from go into the heart of the problem and start solving the problem not just from a scientific perspective but truly hands-on as well you know putting these theories to the test and um, helping people out of addiction, which is actually the subject of your latest book. And so it seems like still one of the, the topics that, you know, when you talk to anybody, you're one of the world-renowned experts in addiction. So I um, would love to just kind of dive in and get your take on the, the origins and the sources of addiction and then your journey on, you know, helping people through those perilous waters. Okay. So right now we're living at a time when... Uh Addiction is in the forefront because so many people are dying of overdoses. So in the United States, every month you have something like 140, 130 people dying of overdoses, which means that every month you have the equivalent of 9-11 happening. Wow, that puts it in perspective. Yeah. And overdoses of what compounds in particular? Uh, mostly opiates, but not exclusively. Mm -hmm. And then if you consider the public alarm, the resources, uh, media attention, governmental mobilization, and the intention to do something that was instigated by the 9-11 tragedy, you compare it to the absolute lack of action and um, lack of new thinking around addiction, you can see that we have a real social problem here. And then the social problem is largely uh, incomprehension, misunderstanding uh, of what addiction is actually all about. Now, um, your current uh, Attorney General in the States, Jeff Sessions, has just talked about the beautiful work that Nancy Reagan did in the 1980s, telling people just to say no. <laughs> and uh, That worked said, really well. That worked really well, yeah, as we can see today. Outstanding policy. Yeah. yeah. But he's saying, yes, we can put prevention back in again. His idea of prevention is to tell people that to choose drugs is a bad idea. In other words, 
his thinking, but the thinking of the legal system and the society as a whole is that addiction is a choice that people make. Right. Now, which other- makes it, which makes you able to <laughs> kind of almost justify these deaths in a certain way. Oh, it's their own fault and Absolutely. screw them. Not that the people actually say those words, but that's the actions that they're taking express that kind of I, belief I've system. I've heard people say that kind of thing, that, yeah. you know, it's just nature's way of reading out the idiots, yeah. this, this kind of hostility towards the addicts. The other view is expressed by your Surgeon General who says that it's a brain disease, uh, which originates largely in genetics, which is more humane, at least it doesn't blame people, and it allows for treatment, so it's a step forward, but it also misses the point. Mm -hmm. Because let me give you an addiction definition, and let me ask you a question. So addiction is uh, manifested in any behavior that a person craves, finds temporary pleasure or relief in, but suffers negative consequences as a result of, and still does not give up. That's what an addiction is. I said any behavior. could be sex, gambling, food, shopping, or drugs, or substances, alcohol, whatever it is. So I'm not going to ask you what or when, but, but that definition, Aubrey, have you ever had an addictive pattern in your life? For sure. Okay. So the question is going to be now, what did you like about it? What did it do for you in the short term? Well, I was, you know, interested to actually talk to you about this in particular because I think I'm addicted to stress in a certain way. Like I think in in some aspect, I create situations that put myself under considerable stress, and I and I can't not put myself continue to put myself in those situations. Uh, do you look forward to those situations? In a perverse way, I guess I do. I guess it feels like a fuel. It feels like I'm doing something valuable perhaps okay so so it gives you a sense of value i think so it makes me feel like now i'm really in the fight you know it's some some identity piece whereas if i'm under stress then that makes me a bit more who i want to be of some sort i understand so then it actually gives some meaning to your life yeah some purpose some engagement now other people might say it soothes my pain. Other people might say it distracts me from my problems. Other people might say it releases my stress. Other people might say it makes me feel more powerful. But whether it's what you said, which is meaning and purpose and value, or whether it's anything else, what we see is that the addiction is not the primary problem. It's an attempt to solve a problem. Mm-hmm. And your problem is lack of value, yep. lack of purpose, lack of meaning, and lack of maybe vital engagement with life. And so in other words, to say that addiction is either a choice or it's a primary brain disease is to miss the point that it actually serves a function in your life. Mm-hmm. And then the real question becomes, where did you learn that you don't have value unless you engage with something? How come you're the not... The world. Uh, <laughs> well, no, it's more specific than yeah. that. Probably my father then. It, it was in the world, but at some point, you learned that unless you were really active and doing something, you lacked value. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the problem is that lack of sense of value, the addiction is just an attempt to solve a problem. Now, would you agree with me that any human being has intrinsic value, doesn't matter who they are or what they did or didn't do? 100%. Except that's true for everybody else except you. (laughs) In my own, yeah, in in my own own pattern system yeah i mean okay. i can it's easy to understand these things and that's the thing i think with addiction you can mentally understand a concept but yeah. to somatically believe it in such a way that you can transcend those behaviors becomes really challenging because i understand that fundamental truth everything you're saying makes sense yeah 
And I don't know if after this conversation, even even with greater illumination shed, I'll still be able to quit my. But stress I'm not trying years. to teach you anything. Yeah. <laughs> I'm actually I'm actually trying to show light on a problem. Right. Which is that some point in your somewhere in your life, you learned that you had no value unless you were performing or doing something uh, in a stressful circumstance. Performing well, even yeah. okay. you know, not even just uh, performing, but performing uh, well. All right. Now, given that value, just to take your example is an essential human quality, as we both agree, then your disconnection from your value is your trauma. So something happened. And unless until we deal with what happened, where you lost that connection to yourself, uh, we can't really help you with the addiction. So the addiction is a secondary problem just by teaching you behaviors or mantras or, or trying to talk you into recognizing that your value, it's never going to work. Mm-hmm. We've got to deal with the underlying uh, disconnect from yourself that's driving it. So what I'm saying about addiction is that it's always an attempt to solve the problem. It's not a primary problem. And that the problem arose out of a childhood trauma. And that trauma essentially disconnects us, disconnects us from ourselves. Yeah. So that's, that's, the, that's where we have to solve the problem of addiction is in looking at what's driving it. The, the addiction itself is just a symptom or a response to something. It's that something that we have to deal with. So going back to the root cause of the problem, something that in all of our medical treatment models, we oftentimes fail to look at. We're chasing symptoms all over the place rather than going to the root and the heart of the matter, which is, I think, now why psychedelic medicine is showing to be so effective in so many different channels because it tends to go to the root of the issue. Whatever mechanism you want to attribute to it, it finds a way to guide your attention and consciousness to the root of the problem and certainly has helped me unpack many, many problems. But yeah, I mean, I see exactly what you're saying. And I and also remember a quote that you said that, you know, not all traumatized people are have addictions, but all addicts have been traumatized. That's right. You know, it's the the common ground between all addictions is a source of trauma. And I never really looked at it that way, but it's that conditional self-love model where if I performed well in a basketball game or in a test or something like that, then I received love from my world at the time, which was my parents, Yeah, the thing that mattered most. In those times where I didn't perform and I m- missed something, I failed to do something, I played a bad game because I wasn't paying attention or whatever it was, the love was withdrawn. And yeah. in some ways, while people have a dr- large amount more trauma than me, and it's not a poor me story, there was a certain amount of trauma that got patterned from the you know, love and then the removal of love. Well, I, I would caution you against comparing traumas uh, yeah. because we all have our own experience and it just doesn't work to compare one, my trauma is less than yours or bigger than yours. You know, it's just sure. not worth playing. Number one, number two, there's something else going on here as well. There's something very familiar to you about being stressed, familiar and comfortable. Yeah. Now, what's the root of the word familiar? Family. <laughs> yeah. Which is to say, you grew up in a very stressed family. Yeah. That was the environment. I don't know anything about you, but that that was you just told me that was the environment that you grew up in, and and to some extent, we recreate. We all recreate the emotional resonances that we experience as children. So until you're willing to leave your family in that sense, uh, you're going to keep recreating this. Mm-hmm. And uh, you're still seeking that love 
that you didn't get the way you needed it at that time from the environment. And I totally relate. Now you happen to be big and athletic. I'm not. So basketball wasn't going to be I was going to get love. But yeah. being smart and getting good grades and, and, and validating myself and then becoming a doctor so everybody would want me mm-hmm. was my particular way. So we each find our our... our our attempted solution to the trauma of being disconnected from our own sense of value. Other people will find it in the soothing that drugs provide or in alcohol or whatever it is, but the underlying dynamic is always that childhood trauma. And and that trauma is always based on either things happening that shouldn't have happened, such as abuse that happens to a lot of people, or things not happening that should have happened, which is just being valued and accepted for who you are. Yeah. No, that makes perfect sense. And what was interesting for me is my parents split when I was like less than two. Okay. And then, so on my father's side, it's, it's all of my stress addictions. Yes, super stressed yeah. all the time, stressed yeah. up all night. He was a commodities trader all the time, stressed, also fairly neurotic about a variety of different things. And right. so pattern that fortunately for me, my mother's side was the opposite it was kind of more relaxed and mm. just more unconditional love and so mm. i find myself wobbling between these two extremes you know mm. very and unfortunately for me i had two different environments by which to grow to pattern off two different models which i think has allowed me a little bit more elbow room to kind of flow back and forth between it but uh, in this single nuclear family dynamic you know it's a incredibly strong patterning force probably way more than we even ever can imagine well look first of all if your parents split when you were two they didn't all of a sudden wake up after a happy interlude of two years of joy and then decided to split no in other words there would have been a lot of stress between them now infants uh, download the stresses of their parents how early uh, from in utero onwards already, wow. already within the womb so when a pregnant woman is stressed and stress means that the stress hormones are high in her body. They go to the placenta of the baby. So we can look at the heart rate patterns of the child when the mother is stressed and they're different. I'm glad I'm not bearing children anytime uh, soon. Yeah. <laughs> I got to fix myself for. Before I wouldn't that think you'd be able to bear children anyway. <laughs> but yeah. that, maybe that's a biological fact you have to discover. <laughs> Hate to disappoint you. Uh, <clears throat> but, but in any case, um, it begins in utero. Yeah. And then. <clears throat> Basically, children just um, absorb the stresses of their parents. And if the mother is in pain, the baby is in pain. Emotionally, that's, it's that simple. But since it's the mother's soothing that the infant needs when the, uh, to, to release that pain, when the mother is in pain, nothing releases the pain. So that means you absorbed a lot of pain from early on. Mm-hmm. Not only that, when the parents are stressed and troubled, infants and children being narcissistic in the sense that it's all about themselves, basically, there's a deep sense of inadequacy and shame. Because the child believes that if this is happening, it's because there's something wrong with me. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot to compensate for. Mm-hmm. And all these things that I'm talking about are the essence of trauma. So my book on addiction is really all about the fact that uh, addiction is actually a normal response to abnormal circumstances. It's just a desperate attempt on the part of the individual to soothe the pain, uh, to somehow paper over the loss. But of course, it can't do it. It's a doomed, a failed attempt but just to condemn somebody or to think that they have a brain disease. Now, the brain does come into it because the brain is actually programmed by the environment. And the most important aspect programming the circuitry of the brain is the emotional environment in which the child grows up. 
So there's an article from Harvard University published five years ago that says that the uh, the brain is shaped by uh, interaction of genes and environment, and the most important aspect of the environment is the quality of adult-child responsiveness. And when your parents are stressed like your parents were, they couldn't have been as responsive to you as they might have wished to be, mm-hmm. which means your brain would have been also uh, affected, which means that the stress circuitry in your brain would have been set at a high level, and when it's not, you don't even feel normal. Mm-hmm. So for you, normal is to be stressed. So, having said all that, healing is possible, but this is the the basic ground of addiction of all kinds, and, and of all kinds of diseases as well. So getting into the healing part, you know, because this is something, it's one thing to have awareness, something yeah. to understand where the root is, yeah. and then the next step is to go in there and fix it, yeah. you know, because we're incredibly resilient, malleable yeah. beings if we take the right steps. And That's right. So what are, what are the steps to get in there and start to remediate these traumas? Well, recall what I said, that the essence of stress, or the, sorry, the essence of trauma is disconnection from the self. That's the good news. Because if the trauma was that your parents split and were unhappy before you're two years old, mm-hmm. and that your father was demanding and judgmental and perhaps harsh with you and you didn't perform well, if that was the trauma, then you're stuck because that can never be undone. That happened. It'll never unhappen. But if the result was, if the trauma was what happened in, t- in you internally, that disconnection from yourself that connection can be regained at any time. So um, the Western medicine, unfortunately, as you alluded to earlier, sees everything in terms of disease categories. And these are there to be endured or to be mitigated or to be cured, but there's no sense in Western medicine that I was trained in, in the Western medical tradition, of internal healing processes that could be invigorated or evoked or supported and yet the healing is in that reconnection with the self. So there are means to do that, but that is the goal, and that is also the promise, because it means that it's okay, this stuff happened, or good stuff that shouldn't have happened didn't happen, but the connection with your authentic self is available to you at any time. And it's interesting, the connection with self, to me, has often felt like a transcendence of self, almost as if, in a lot of the psychedelic medicine work that I've done, mm-hmm. you get a sense of loss of self, which then ends up, in a kind of counterintuitive way, forming those stronger connections to self. It's almost like you have to lose these stories about your identity, identify as something mm-hmm. greater than that, that force of consciousness, which then becomes your new self, which you can be connected to. Well, so there's the false self and there's the real self. Yeah. And so what you're talking about is the loss of the ego, mm-hmm. uh, uh, the egoic self. Now, the egoic self, uh, not to criticize it, but just to describe it, is the set of defensive compensations and identifications and false assumptions that we develop because we lost connection to our true self. And that egoic self, once it develops to protect you against pain, as it does in childhood, is very tenacious. It does not want to let go of you. Uh, Because um, it's desperate for its survival, because its survival is associated with your survival Mm -hmm. in childhood. 
so it doesn't let go easily. So when you're talking about the loss of the self, you're talking about the loss of that egoic self. That's what they call ego death. Now then there's a larger self that, look at the very word uh, in addiction healing is recovery. Recovery means to find something again. That's what it means to recover something. You find sure. it. When you ask people, what did you find when you recovered? 99% of the time people say, I found myself. Which means to say that the true self, the authentic self, was never lost, damaged, or, or, or destroyed. But it was... Obscured. It was obscured by the false self. So yes, to get the true self, you do have to use the new self. Which is what Jesus talked about, by the way. When he talked about that, unless you're born again, you can't enter the kingdom of God. Mm -hmm. Now, he wasn't talking about psychedelics. He was just talking about... Uh, he might have been. Well, I... <laughs> I don't necessarily think so, but right. and, 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 and I know that we're speaking in the context of a conference on psychedelic healing, so sure. we can certainly talk about psychedelics, but it's important to emphasize that that process of, 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 of uh, recovering the self, of, of reconnecting, is not dependent on any one particular modality. No. There's all kinds of roots to it. Psychedelics in the right context being a particularly powerful way, but certainly not the only way. So, but but that loss of the and 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 uh, and he, Jesus even said also said that <clears throat> those that cling to life will die, and those that are willing to die will live. Uh, I, I'm rephrasing him, but the words to that effect, I could find them on my cell phone because I have them recorded on it. But basically, he's saying that the egoic self has to die for the true self to live which is what you're describing. Yeah. And Jesus's modality in the actual myth is, you know, that 40 day 40 days in the desert. Meditation, yeah. Yeah, which is the, you know, this kind of classic vision quest That's moment, right. fasting, time alone, meditation, right. um which is uh what psychedelics can kind of get you to that place but there's tons of different ways that you can get there and that's the one in that classic story. And I think it's funny that you know, in the, unfortunately, in the myth, people look at Jesus as coming, having been birthed as perfect from the start. Yeah. But I think it's a much more interesting myth mm -hmm. when you look at him as a man who is uncovering his true God self, mm -hmm. the self that he, in, in in his deepest teaching, says is in all of us. Well, you well. have to you have to wonder why it took him thirty two years to manifest himself. You know, <laughs> right? I mean, if he was perfect right from the beginning, why not at age eighteen? And yeah. now, you know, without getting into theology. Totally, that forty days in the desert, and where he gets tempted, right? He gets tempted by the devil, you know. He gets tempted by uh, power and wealth and 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 fame and all that, and he's and, and he has to say, in other words, he gets tempted by the ego, mm -hmm. and he has to say, no, uh, I I am not going to choose that because that's not authentic. It's not where uh, healing or or salvation lie. So it's very much a typical, I would say, archetypical. Uh, uh, story. Um, now, again, about psychedelics. <clears throat> Some people listening may wondering what the heck we're chattering about because they associate psychedelics with uh, being hippies and and dropping acid and and tripping out all the time. And we have to emphasize that although psychedelic healing has been a part of plant healing, has been a part of human experience for thousands of years. It can also be misused, so it, it very much depends on context and intention and uh, guidance. Mm -hmm. So nobody's suggesting that take this substance and you'll be healed. But however, there's a lot of experience that in the right context, with the right guidance, 
with the proper intention. Uh, a lot of people have had beneficial and even life-altering and even life-saving experiences with psychedelics. And you've seen those firsthand. And I think that's also important too. When, when people talk about MDMA healing trauma, no one's proven that MDMA heals trauma. What we've proven is that MDMA-assisted psychotherapy has right. healed trauma. You know, Using this as a tool to get into those deeper states with the skilled both substance and practitioner right. combining to release that you know, Absolutely. I think is a is a very powerful means. Ayahuasca, though, I'm I'm curious because it seems to almost have its own self guided practitioner in. It seems, in my experiences, to you feel guided by, and sometimes you can call that the force of ayahuasca, Mother Ayahuasca. But it feels like an entity itself, almost like a a guidance counselor who's taking you on that journey, um, so that you can have these experiences, um, almost unguided i mean you're in the context the set and setting has to be right the container has to be right the medicine all of that but do you when you're you know working with people with ayahuasca do you let the ayahuasca work in that kind of unguided manner or do you act as um kind of another secondary guide to help guide people through to their issues well uh, it's interesting what you say <clears throat> three weeks ago i conducted a healing session with a highly traumatized individual using not MDMA but something similar to it mm -hmm. and my colleague and I took a little bit of it just so that we could be on the same wavelength the person took the therapeutic amount and it was a process of <clears throat> psychotherapy under the impact of this particular substance it was extraordinarily powerful to be a part of mm -hmm. and the amount of processing of trauma that took place an amount of reconnecting with self that took place within a six, seven hour period was beyond what it would take years in traditional psychotherapy to achieve. But there was no sense of presence there other than those of us in the room and, 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 and the substance that we had all partly uh, ingested. <clears throat> with ayahuasca, with the plant medicines, people often talk about the sense of presence being there. Mm -hmm. And my, I'm not an ayahuasca, I don't, lead ceremonies, I don't chant, I don't sing the Icaros. I do I don't sing the Icaros, the songs, I don't do the energetic healing. I facilitate it beforehand and afterwards, but doing ceremony I'm just a silent participant. And participants often and 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 the ayahuascaros I work with, the curanderos I work with, they'll talk about ayahuasca as a presence, as a teacher, as a as a madre, as a mother, or as a grandmother. And participants often experience that. Uh, now, <clears throat> however, um, the presence is evoked by the chanting. Mm -hmm. The presence is evoked by the ceremony. So, uh, I don't believe that somebody sitting on their own in a room by themselves where there's no... Uh, practiced and highly experienced shamanic guidance would have the same experience as they would in a ceremonial context where that specific chanting and energetic work is available. Because the ayahuascars I work with, the curanderos, the people who lead the ceremony, mm -hmm. they don't just sing a playlist of songs randomly. They all know what to chant to whom at what, at what particular time based on what kind of energies they, they're reading, 
that person emanating at that moment. And they're, they're astonishingly accurate. And, and the participants afterwards will say, afterwards will say, well, just when I, such and such, they chanted to me, and then something happened. So there's a dynamic interaction between the uh, effect of the plant inside that person's individual organism and the context in which it's taking place. Sure. So would the entity show up for some people if they just did it on their own? Probably it would, but not nearly as um, beneficially. Yeah. I mean, the shamans themselves act as that, you know, I think the Quechua word is shakaruna, the bridge to help form, bring that, that sense of entity or that sense of connection to something right. greater into the individual for sure. And I certainly experienced some right. paradigm altering, uh, you know, yeah. case you? studies of that as well. Well, I, w I wish I could say that I have, but you know what? For all that I work with the plant, and I think it's, I don't think, I know it's powerful work, and it's one of the, most the favorite activities I have in the sense of uh, what is transformational potential is for human beings. I've never had the, the entity show up for me really? in a sense where I, well, you know what? Even as I say that, I realize that it's not true. Uh, there were times when I felt held and kind of rocked, mm -hmm. you know, by something. I, I, I actually did. It's just my mind that says, no, I didn't. <laughs> so <laughs> I have. But some people have had the clear sense of entity and presence much more um, acutely than I have. Yeah, for me, I, I've drank 17 times and mm. it's been hasn't been every single time, yeah. you know, but sometimes it's very clear. Sometimes it's a straight up conversation. Sometimes yeah. it's conversation with the visual, you yeah. know, where we're literally conversing with each other. And sometimes it is just that, that force, you know, that sense of a, a great mother of wisdom more infinite than any human could ever aspire to, you know, kind of holding you and saying everything without needing any words to say it with. You know, I have had many people tell me that in retreats that I lead, mm -hmm. but I've never had that experience. <laughs> <laughs> She's never come and presented herself and talked to me. Now, maybe I haven't opened to her enough yet. Maybe yeah. uh, also, you know, uh, Everybody has different experiences and we have our own way, but that kind of um, interactive, dynamic interaction that you describe, I can honestly tell you it's never happened. Wow, that's interesting. Wow, yeah. there's still journey ahead. Who knows Who knows yeah. which way it'll go? Or, or maybe I have a different path, I don't know. Yeah, absolutely. So there's, you know, another thing, you know, with this trauma that's kind of sets up, it doesn't just set up patterns of addiction though. I mean, some of your other work has shown that these traumas can create certain stressors and emotional patterns that can also lead to physical illness as well. Well, we've had people at our retreats with uh, severe uh, physical illnesses that actually got significantly better after Western medicine has written them off. And that's not surprising to me, it's what I would expect because um, it's a false uh, separation of mind and body that dominates Western medicine. The medical tradition in which I'm trained separates mind from the body. Whereas neither in science nor in reality can you separate mind from the body. So what happens emotionally uh, because of the interconnections of the brain and the bone marrow and the heart and the lungs and the gut and the immune system and the nervous system, these are all one unit. Um, and you can just imagine if you have a certain emotion like fear, that would change your physiology in a split second. Well, that happens 24-7. So our, our, our emotional life is always in interaction with our, our physiology. 
That means that certain emotional patterns will have a negative impact on your physiology, and I've certainly seen in decades of medical practice that certain childhood events will set up emotional and behavioral patterns that will stress somebody, which itself will predispose to disease. So whether you're talking about cancer or rheumatoid arthritis or ALS or multiple sclerosis or colitis or Crohn's disease, uh, in every case, there's significant childhood trauma, which then becomes translated into certain uh, rigid coping mechanisms, which then predispose to disease. Yeah. And if you can reverse those patterns, quite a lot of healing is possible. Yeah, it, it's interesting. I'm. I, I don't know. Are you familiar with uh, Dr. Joe Dispenza's book? You were the placebo. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm not that book, but I'm familiar with his previous book. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Well, it was really eye-opening for me to read that because placebo is this thing that science kind of discards, dismisses. Yeah. You, you account for it in all the studies. No, it's just the placebo effect. Yeah. Like, wait, wait a minute. Just the placebo effect. Yeah, what yeah, you're yeah. saying is that the mind is curing the body in every known condition because you're accounting right. for it in every known condition. Absolutely. How about and and the great point that he makes is how about let's focus on that thing. That's right. How about focus on the fact that the mind can cure the body, and he also has a lot of case studies of the nocebo that effect where the mind believes that it's going to become ill or mm -hmm. some harmful effect will happen and how much that affects. And despite that being proven over and over and over and over again, you know, the, the Western model typically just disregards it, disregards the ability of the mind to heal the body. And it's really baffling that we're still in an era with that information available, but we can't make that shift. Not only, is the, not only are those case studies available, we even have the science to show why they're plausible. Mm -hmm. So there's a real disregard of science in the practice of medicine. There's, at least there's a very narrow view of science. And uh, there's, there's Dispenser's book, there's um, Kelly Turner has written a book called Radical Recovery where she's collected a lot of people who've on their own recovered from so-called fatal illnesses in, in ways that Western medicine can't explain. There's a very famous book, uh, uh, dying to be me by Anita Marjani, who's deathly ill with lymphoma and has got three weeks to live and has an out-of-body experience and which transforms her view of herself and she walks out of hospital uh, completely healed and still is years later. There's examples that I've seen. Not to say that there's an easy answer to everything, but to say that the mind-body unity and how to explore it and how to work with it is an important area of investigation and practice that Western medicine completely ignores. Yeah, I mean, and I think that's a really good point. This isn't an easy thing to do because what you're talking about is altering your emotional and mental you know, state of being in chemistry. Like, that's think right. how hard it is to get a song that's stuck in your head out of your head. That's right. You know, like, it's hard to get a song out of your head. Yeah, it is. And then, but think about having to do that. And, and Dispenza talks about that when he was healing his own body. That, yeah going through and truly unifying and uniting all yeah. of your belief in yeah. a way that you can actually translate it emotionally into the body, into the cells, into the secretions of the neurochemicals that are going to alter your states. That's right. That's hard ass work. It or is. it can come in a transcendent, beautiful out of body moment, you know, that some people are fortunate enough to experience. But if you're going to go down the road of creating that yourself, it's a very challenging path. It's challenging, and personally, I don't know that I'd know how to do it for myself. Mm -hmm. It's one thing for me to advise others and to write my books about the mind-body unity or what, but it's quite another 
even to deal with some very simple basic patterns of sure. life you know that that are not helping me but i have difficulty giving them up you know so uh, self beliefs uh, um, so it's it's difficult work but but again uh it's possible and plausible and there there is all kinds of reason why it is plausible and possible that is scientifically not even controversial so it's a question of where do we put our attention yeah and uh, unfortunately in the west we tend to put our attention on things that at best well sometimes it's particularly successful when it comes to acute issues acute things you know but in terms of chronic conditions whether of the mind or the body we're desperately poor uh, at, at 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 healing them uh, at best we mitigate the symptoms yeah one of these things that I know you spent quite a bit of time on is ADD and ADHD. Right. And this is this kind of rampant catch-all disorder that everybody seems to have these days. And not only that, the medication for it is pretty much a recreational drug for most of the people I know. Can be, yeah. Yeah, and it's it's a very interesting time we live in. And I think you have some interesting takes on kind of where this comes from and what this is actually a symptom of what is the root of ADD and ADHD well my first book was on that and I wrote that after I was diagnosed with it myself uh, in my 50s um, but but I never bought into the idea that it's a genetic disease or a disease at all uh, because tuning out the absent-mindedness the scattered attention is not a disease it's actually a nature-given coping mechanism so um, if I were to stress you right now, I mean really threaten you or, or abuse you, you have a number of options. One is to fight back, the other is to escape, or with two other of your <laughs> colleagues in the room here, you could ask for help. Yeah. But what if you couldn't do any of those things? Then what your mind would do is, one of the things your mind could do to protect you, at least from the stress of it, is to scatter your attention, to tune out. Makes sense. Now, um, if you take the environment I grew up in as an infant, which is a highly stressed environment, uh, and as an infant I can neither ask for help nor leave or fight back, then my mind is tuning out when my brain is developing, which develops under the impact of the environment, as I said earlier. Yeah. So that means I'm tuning out a lot when my brain circuits are being formed. So the tuning out then pro gets programmed in as kind of a default setting in my mind, in my brain. And now, 50 years later, or in some of the cases, five years later, that one is diagnosed with what they call is a disease. <clears throat> but it's not a disease. <clears throat> Excuse me. It's a condition that was meant to be a temporary state under conditions of duress, but now becomes a long-term trait because the stress was so long-lasting. And then you're given this diagnosis. And and if we go back to the question that you pose of why we're we seeing all of this so much in society right now, it's because the parenting environment for so many families have become so stressed that more and more kids as infants are having to tune out. And that's not the parents' fault. It has to do with the disconnection in society, the lack of uh, uh, community, the lack of support, uh, the economic stress on people, both parents, parents having to be absent the whole day for the child because they have to make a living. And and all of the, and and the parents stresses themselves that become absorbed by the child, and this is in the best meaning and most loving families, 
yeah. let alone families where there is uh, severe trauma and maybe abuse and so on. So it's a mark of the culture that more and more children are having to tune out and then are being diagnosed. And uh, then again, what medicine, medicine does, you've got this disease and we're just going to change the biology of your brain temporarily by means of this particular chemical. But they're not looking at how to help that child develop new brain circuits. What conditions do children need for healthy development in the home and in the schools and the families? And so if medication needs to be a part of it in some cases, well, I've taken them myself. I'm not against them. But they're not the answer. At the very best, they mitigate symptoms. They don't deal with causes. So, I mean, all my books, whether on addiction or stress and health or, or ADD, I'm just interested in the roots of things. Because mm-hmm. until we, which means to be radical, is to radical actually means a root. So to be radical, you have to go to the roots of things and, and deal with that, as you said in the beginning, rather than just with the effects. Mm-hmm. And ADD and addiction and disease are effects, they're not causes. Do you feel like you were able to do that with your own uh, struggles with ADD? That you were able well, to I'm not, get through it? It's been a decade that I've, or more, that I've taken medication for it. Um, Mm-hmm. In fact, when I've tried them more recently, I mean, years ago now, all I get is negative side effects. Right. I no longer get benefit, which means my brain must have changed, you know. And, uh, yeah, I've dealt with a lot of it. But that means looking at the stresses in my life, looking at uh, my physical health, exercise, you know, how I eat. It means um, some mindfulness practice, in my case, Belatedly in life, I've discovered I've discovered yoga, <laughs> or awesome. yoga has discovered me. I should say, <laughs> finally, right. uh, dealing with the stresses in my marriage relationship. You know, because when the more stressed you are, the more scattered your mind's going to be. Well, it, it seems like it mimics the original trigger. You know, these stressful environments That's right. mimic the original trigger, which scatters your attention as an additional coping me- mechanism. Absolutely. Yeah, makes so you, sense. So if you deal with all that, then why wouldn't it get better? Yeah. Uh, which is very different from just taking a pill. Right. So if you're going to take pills, well, um, see them as a short gap holding action while you're doing, while you go and do the work that you really need to do. And yeah. it was actually an ayahuasca ceremony that the shaman I was working with, and we had somebody in the group with really severe ADD, and at two in the morning, a shaman comes over to me and says, I just got what ADD is about. And I said, yeah, what is it? He says, it's an intense fear of the present moment. <laughs> and of course it is, because as children, we become, we become scared of the present moment when the present moment is painful. Right. Why wouldn't we be scared of it? And then we try and escape from it at all costs. And uh, if we can find a way to come back to the present moment, which is to say, come back to ourselves. That's where the healing is. And that's where the fun is. That's where the magic is. You know, that's if you're always escaping the present moment, you know, you're not going to taste nearly the the cornucopia of pleasure that's available in this life. Maybe you'll diminish and scatter some of the pain, but you're also not going to experience the positive. I mean, that is where, you know, that is where the juice is. That's the juice of the pear. It's well, it is, and, 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 and the thing about escape from the present is that uh, when you escape from the pain, you also escape from the joy, Yeah, because life holds both those possibilities pretty even-handedly, 
uh, as potentials depending on circumstances. And if you determine not to experience the one, you're not likely to experience the other either. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. If you could go back and offer some wisdom to younger Gabor, what would that wisdom be at, at different stages? Let's say 18-year-old Gabor, 30-year-old, 50-year-old. What would you? What wisdom would you offer? Or would it be the same advice all throughout? You know, when, uh, when you ask that question, I'm just so grateful that I'm not any of those. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'd love to have my body back at age 18 right. with, the, with what I know now. But I, I don't want to go through that stuff again. You know? <laughs> uh, when I look at my diaries in the 40s, in my 40s, just frustration and depression. And this is despite very successful professional life. Sure. And, and, and three kids and a wife that loves me. None of that made any difference eternally. So what would I advice would I give? Um, is not to look for the solutions inside yourself. Don't keep thinking that if you do this or get that, you'll be happy but that uh, both the problem and its resolution exist within you right now at this very moment. So put the attention there and get the help so you can put the attention there. You can't do it on your own. Mm -hmm. So don't be afraid to ask for help. We be vulnerable, uh, be open, um, and be very curious about what's happening inside you. And it's not gonna be through your political activism or your workaholism or going to bed with this person or that person that's going to uh, that's going to uh, improve the quality of your life ultimately it seems to be one of the great myths that we're all subject to and that we all fall under this idea that changing something externally is going to permanently change our internal environment oh if i just get to this thing if i just get this thing and had this thing happen everything's going to be all right. Everything is just a false summit. It's just another stop in this mountain that you'll always be looking for until you start pointing that focus and attention inward. And then miraculously, what I've found is the more internal work I do, the more the external gets easy. That's the, right. The better my career gets, the more available love options I have. Yes. Everything ends up working out. So whereas you think like, oh, I don't have time to focus inside. I got to focus on this outside. It's actually the opposite. The more you focus internally, the easier everything gets externally. Absolutely. And uh, the very American dream, the pursuit of happiness. And when you're pursuing happiness, it's something outside of you that you're running after. It's a dead end. You know, um, it's actually not a pursuit it's a it's an investigation and inquiry into the self and and it's a, totally true that that the external will reflect the internal now having said that i want to be careful because there are people in your country and my canada who through no fault of their own are in terrible circumstances they just happen to be the wrong color or the wrong class and uh, they didn't create that. So we don't want to uh, defame people by blaming them for their life circumstances. They didn't know, I didn't choose to be a Jewish infant under the Nazis. Right. I didn't create that. So we're not talking about that part of it. That part of it has to be kept in mind. But what is true is that for any one person, 
the more they understand themselves, and it doesn't matter what class or situation they're in, the more they understand themselves, the more and the more they get related to themselves, the more freedom they'll have to respond to their life circumstances. Yeah. Uh, Even so, in the worst circumstances, if you can help manage your internal environment, you can help manage the thing that matters the most. I think one of the most compelling stories I read was from Ryan Holiday's book, Obstacle is the Way, and it was someone who was stuck in a, um, a prisoner of war camp, POW yeah. camp in Vietnam, and yeah. horrible conditions, yeah. daily torture. Yeah. And in his own mind, he played a round of golf on his favorite course back home just to keep his mind sane and controlled those thoughts and would play the whole, sometimes he'd get in the sand trap, have to, you know, swing himself out of the sand trap, play this every single day. And while people around him were dying and suffering, you know, he was managed to keep that thread and eventually got out, survived, eventually got out, went out to that. And the cool end of the story is he went out to his course that he played in his head every day and shot par. (laughs) Wow, and made it out there, and 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 the the moral of that is yes, the external world can be real, yeah. but by managing your internal reaction to it, you can minimize the suffering associated with the pain. Well, absolutely, and there's a wonderful quote from um, from um, Viktor Frankl, and and Frankl was a psychiatrist from Austria who, as a young man. Uh, served time, if you can call it that, in concentration camps, and he went through the the worst camps, uh, like Auschwitz and Dachau and Buchenwald, and he survived. And he actually writes, and as I'm speaking, I'm searching for the quote on my cell phone here, but I'll find it in a minute here. And here's what he says. He says, between stimulus and res- and, he, and he actually learned this in the camps. Mm-hmm. Between stimulus and response, there's a space. In that space is our power to choose our response. In our response lies our growth and our freedom. Everything can be taken from a man but one thing, the last of the human freedoms, to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's own way. And... Um, very similar to what the story used to recounted. There was a story in the New Yorker a few months ago of a, a, a Black Panther from here, I think from Oakland, where we're speaking, mm-hmm. who gets framed and jailed on a completely false murder charge. And he's in solitary confinement for three and a half decades. Wow. Literally spent most of the time. And he survived. And he just did exactly what your prisoner of war camp uh, story also in place. He just, in his mind, he said, I will not be subject to this. I will not let them do this to me. I will not let them destroy me. Now, I don't think you're saying, and I'm not saying, it's just easy like that, and anybody can do it. But it's possible for human beings to be that responsible yeah. for their responses, uh, no matter what the circumstances. It's at least possible. And the question that we have to ask is, how do we help ourselves and how do we help other people attain that degree of responsibility, that degree of ability to respond? Yeah, absolutely. And and how do we look at these external circumstances as potential training grounds, as ways yeah. that we can hone this response? I mean, yeah. in the most extreme stimulus, you can develop the most extreme skills and power, you know, and, and an ability to master those. So whatever situation you're in, whatever dark place you find yourself in, you can 
use that as the grindstone to sharpen the steel of your will and your spirit. You know, you know this yogi that I met in September and I did this yoga program I told you about, I told him, listen, I can help a lot of people, but internally I just have a hard time shifting my moroseness. <laughs> you know, and, and I said, that goes back to suffering in my early childhood. And he said, along the lines of what you're saying, he said, well, when you suffer a lot, you should become wiser. <laughs> you should yeah. let that teach you. Yeah. And uh, and that that means you should be the most joyful at all, <laughs> of all because you have learned all this stuff. Um, and uh, he said, that suffering of yours happened a long time ago. What's holding you back now? He says, it's simply that you got this sharp mind that can cut like a scalpel to the truth and help a lot of people see reality, but internally you don't know how to use the mind. <laughs> you you keep you, you, that sharp knife of yours keeps cutting yourself, and you know just that little conversation, and then the practice that followed has made a huge difference for me. I can see the smile coming out of you even when yeah. you, even when you talk about it. Yeah, yeah, it's a beautiful thing. It's beautiful too that even you know. You just recently discovered yoga. It's not too late to learn no. new things and develop new practices. Wherever you are, I think it's one of those other fallacies of the mind. We love telling ourselves, oh, it's too late. Yeah. Bullshit, it's not too late. It's never too late. There's always an opportunity to learn and grow. And well, so, yeah, my line about that is I'm 73 now, and I'm really glad I'm not as stupid and young as when I was 72. You know? <laughs> oh, that's beautiful, and I think it's a good way to end. Where, where would you like people to... Um, to go to i know you got a great uh website blog up and yeah, some yeah. books out where would you like to if people want to learn more about what you do well uh, i speak all over the place so the my speaking events are always listed at my website www.drgabormate.com uh, my books on addiction mind body health child development adhd you can see them at my website and purchase them online not through me but online bookstores or any bookstores and so on and uh, a lot of my writings and youtube lectures are collected at my website no cost any of that so basically anybody interested in my work interested in my work the best place to check it out is at my website or, and on youtube awesome and, well, and by the way i'll be offering some online courses finally i'm getting into the 21st century so outstanding and, and if, if people interested again they can sign up at my website Awesome. Well, when those come out, I'll make sure to share all the links and Great. let everybody who's listening know for sure. Thank you. Gabor, it's been a, a true pleasure and an honor. I'm yeah. happy we got a chance to sit down. That was great. I enjoyed talking with you. Thank you. Yeah, for sure. So the third supplement we ever came out with at Onnit was a product called Shroom Tech Sport. And the idea was to create a pre-workout that was different than anything else out there in the market. I remember taking stuff and was all jittery from all the caffeine. And I wanted something that could fuel me, give me energy, but didn't have all the crap in it. So we created something that was an adaptogen-based formula built around the cordyceps, sinensis mushroom, methylated B vitamins, decaffeinated green tea, a lot of nutrients that can support the body. And actually make it more healthy to take a pre-workout rather than something you're doing that's gonna help you work out, but you're gonna pay the taxes on it later. So Shroom Tech Sport came about, it's something that's a mainstay for all of our athletes. You'll hear Joe Rogan talking about it, giving him an extra role on the jujitsu mats, our hockey players saying it extends their time, a shift on the ice. It helps with oxygen utilization, it helps with motivation to get out there into the gym. And we wanted to offer it to everybody um, to give it a try for free. And so if you sign up at onnit.com slash amp, A-M-P, 
you can get a free bottle of Shroom Tech Sport. You got to pay the shipping and handling. And then if you don't like the subscription, you can cancel at any time. We make it super easy. So really, you got no risk. You can try it out, see if you like it as much as we do. And if you do, then integrate it into part of your lifestyle. So onit.com slash amp, A-M-P.